Hi, this is Eric Gurna, President and CEO of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Welcome to a special episode of Please Speak Freely, sponsored by the National After School Association 2014 National Convention. I'm here in New York City at the Hilton Hotel in Midtown Manhattan with Jamie Cassop, the Senior Education Evangelist on the Google Apps for Education team at Google Incorporated. Welcome, Jamie. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Did I get your title right? Actually, the title always changes. It's actually uh, the Global Education Evangelist. Oh, well, you, you got to yeah. update the, the bio on the, the website. I don't know what bio they use. I don't know either. Bios get but, flown around. So sometimes, it's a global education it's evangelist. It's a global education evangelist. So is that a promotion from senior education evangelist? It, it's, it means that they give me more work with less money. Okay. Yeah. So is someone else now the senior education evangelist? No. And, Was and, there a junior education evangelist? Well, it's, <laughs> the title is funny because it, the, let's start with the word evangelist. It, yeah, it started it, it, um, it was a name given to me by one of the uh, directors of uh, technology at one of the states, and I'm not going to name who it was, who said that I sound like a preacher when I speak. Mm. And so he said, you're an evangelist. And so mm-hmm. that's what you should be, call yourself. So I'm like, oh, that's stuck. That was six years ago. Mm-hmm. And then since then, as as, I gotten, as I've gotten higher in, in, in Google, everyone mm-hmm. kind of adds to that. So they, 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 when I got promoted, they called me the senior education evangelist. When I took on more of an international role, they called me the global, international, the global evangelist. And, and okay. some people actually call me the chief education evangelist. So sure. it's all over the place. You could be like the supreme allied commander yes, or exactly. chief evangelist. Yes. Yeah. And there's a certain history in Silicon Valley of um, non-traditional job titles. There is. I remember uh, I'm originally from New York, born mm-hmm. and raised in New York. I remember spending a lot of time in California when I was uh, working at Accenture and meeting people who said that they were the CEO and the COO of these little tiny startups. Right. And I remember thinking about New York and thinking about those guys out there that have their own hot dog stands, thinking about call- calling sure. themselves CEOs and COOs and it's a very, it's a very Western, it's a very California thing to do. Sure, you can just declare yourself a CEO. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean that you right. are. I'm, I'm actually a CEO myself. There you so. go. See, I know. All right. Um, so, I guess my first question is, uh, why does Google even need an education evangelist? That's a good question. The, you know, if you think about what Google's mission is, is it's to organize the world's information and make it accessible and useful, right? That's that's our overall mission. And if you think about what information is, information is education. What the evangelist does, if you know, I look at myself in that third person view, from that third person view, is that that person thinks about all the different things that we're doing at Google and how they fit into education. And then on the other side is to think about education and everything that's happening in education and the future of education. And then I think about what it is that we're building, what it is that we're doing, what it is that we need to build for to be able to provide these tools into education. So my job is to sit there in the middle between Google and the, and the and the global education world and think about the trends and look at what's happening and think about what, what the space looks like and figure out how I can help the engineering teams and the product management teams and the product teams create the best uh Things that we need in education, and that's what my focus is. So, when you say, when you refer to education in that sense, do you mean education as as an industry, education as a field? Yeah, like, yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I mean, ed, the big word, education, right? So, one of the things that I'll and, I'll, uh, and I talk about this in my, in a, lot, a lot in my presentations is when I when I talk to students, um, I don't ask them what they want to be when they grow up. 
I don't even mm-hmm. call them students, actually. I call them lifelong learners, right? But when I talk mm-hmm. to kids, um, I don't ask them uh, what they want to be when they grow up because a lot of these kids don't know what it means. And also, I am working in a job that didn't exist when I graduated high school. Right. And so one of the important things to do is not ask them what they want to be when they grow up, when they, what, when they grow up but instead ask them what problem they want to solve. What problem are they interested in? What spins in their head? What keeps them? What are they passionate about? You mm-hmm. know, how do you get that kid that's interested in, such, in a problem in such a way that they want to work on it for 20 hours a day. That's what we want to focus on. And then I challenge them to think about what education they're going to need to solve that problem. And I don't mean what classes they need to take. I don't mean what college they need to go to. I mean literally what education for the rest of their lives are they going to need to be able to solve that problem. What what online classes can they take? Who can they follow on Twitter? What videos can they watch on YouTube? Uh, what papers should they read? What you know? What coding classes they can take? Everything. The whole everything is available to them. So that word education doesn't mean school. It doesn't mean after school programs. It doesn't mean a professor teaching you something. It means you taking responsibility of building the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you need mm-hmm. to solve the problems that you're interested in. When you talk to young people, you say you talked about young people, what they're passionate about. You can only be passionate about what you've already had access to, right? Uh, yes and no. I, I, so I think that, you know, when, when we talk about uh, you know, I grew up here in Hell's Kitchen, a couple blocks away. This is my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I actually walked the the exact same walk from the hotel that I'm staying at to here that I used to walk to my job, which was across the street at the Ziegfeld Theater where I was in high oh, school. Oh, funny! Yeah. So, so I think that growing up through that space, even though my my I you know I grew up thinking that everything on the other side of the George Washington Bridge was the West Coast and mm-hmm. every, the world was New York City, I can name you ten, twenty problems that were in my community that I was interested in, that I wanted mm-hmm. to solve, whether it was poverty, whether it was drug use, whether it was you know professional advancement, whether, you know whatever it was that I wanted to solve, or just getting around. One of my biggest problems was that the subway, um, you know, I grew up on basically 11th Avenue, and the subway was on 8th Avenue. Yeah. And, and um, on a day like today, where it's you know, minus 5 degrees, yeah. that's a long walk. There is no other way to get to that subway except, you know, walking those three long New York City blocks to get right. there. And I, my, I remember being a kid thinking, how can I solve this problem? What is it that I can do? And now if I think about that problem, think about all the things that have come up, you know, bike shares, bike programs, you know, uh, there's all these other things that, that you can look at in terms of how to solve a problem without ever leaving even a two-block radius. Mm-hmm. You, you talked about self-directed learning and following your passion and education not just being a school or a class but being, you know, directed from from the learner, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of things you mentioned were, were technological means of learning, whether it's watching YouTube video, right. who you follow on Twitter, etc. Um, so the resources that we have to be a self-directed learner today are far greater than they have been in the past. Right. Um, and at the same time, there I think that there's some... Uh, sort of challenges that come up from being so focused on technology. Mm-hmm. You work at Google, so obviously things center around technology for the most part. Right. But um, I, 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 yeah. I'll say, I don't know if that's true. I, okay. I center around relationships mm-hmm. and, and and a network that I live in, right? The everyone, I will I, I know people here that have nothing to do with technology. Technology might have connected us or technology might have, um, you know, brought us together on some projects or whatever, but it's it's the relationships that matter. And that's what I think I center my career around is the relationships that I have. So technology to me is an enabling and, and supporting capability. Yeah. It's not the center of anything. So that that reminds me of uh, a few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times, which I'm sure you're familiar with, about um, 
executives from Silicon Valley, um, Google was one of those mentioned, who um, send their kids to Waldorf schools. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, just for the for anybody who does who's not familiar with Waldorf, Waldorf schools are centered around a very naturalistic kind of learning, um, very, very little technology or or no technology in terms, at least by the definition of electronic technology. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids learn how to to knit and how to do woodwork, and it's it's a very holistic view of education. Um, I would say it's safe to say that there are no screens in in Waldorf schools, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe with some exception somewhere. Um, And it was, this article was a little bit of a gotcha, I think, was the tone of the article, because it was like, oh, you know, Google and all these companies are pushing all this technology, smart boards and all this other stuff in classrooms, but they're sending their own kids to the Waldorf School where there's no screens. Um, So I guess, uh, you know, exhibit A, you know, what what did it reflect? What's my response to that? Yeah, what did you Um, make of I find those things funny. So so first of all, uh, without naming the writer of that article, I would suggest... You just look it up. I would would suggest that you go read all his articles, and and he seems to be very anti-technology in general. Okay. Now, and that's fine. You can be anti-technology, but look, there, I'm a Latino, and there's 13% of us walking around with a master, with a college degree, and mm-hmm. that's just in general. That's not even poverty-driven uh, mm-hmm. Latinos, right? That's like 2%. There's, Wait, I'm sorry. Back up a second. When you're saying 2% or 13%, you mean poorer Latinos yeah, have 2%. It, it, well, I don't know if that number is I'm, – I'm exaggerating on that okay. number. But I know that the general Latino number for, for college degrees is 13%. Across class. Across class. Gotcha. Right? And so what is that number? You know, I haven't dealt, I haven't – dug into the numbers of, right. you know, how do you identify a poor kid and what happens. But, but that's a low enough number. That, right. There's only 4, 4% of us that are walking around with a master's degree. So okay. when I hear someone say, you know, let's do traditional education, I'm like, well, that traditional education hasn't been producing the numbers that they've been producing. We might want to look at other ways of doing this. Um, you know, Waldorf schools and other high price types of schools mm-hmm. have their programs, but I don't, I think that, that we're looking at the correlation um, I don't know if the correlation is there. I think that there's other factors involved. I think that those kids are probably getting technology use. I can't imagine those kids not being able to play Minecraft at home. Right? I, I can't imagine that they're not watching videos when they're, you know, in other words, it's a holistic thing. It's not just what they're doing in school. Mm-hmm. If those parents can afford uh, to send those kids to those schools to do X, and, but I guarantee that they're getting those other exposures and other experiences. Because at the end of the day, if you take those kids, let's say they, let's say, oops, let's say those kids don't use any technology at all, and then they show up in college, mm-hmm. how are they going to do research? How are they going to look for things? How are they going to write paper? You know, it's just I can't imagine a world where, where technology is not an enabling and supporting capability. Also, um, I think that taking that model. If you want to take that model and get really high-priced, high-paid teachers with excellent credentials and unbelievable skill sets into all our school systems, and we pay um, extraordinary amounts of money to be able to do that, I'm all in for it. I'm, I'm into to doing that. But in general, that doesn't work for everyone. But, but my point is that you know, I've, seen some, I've seen some unbelievably great, um, uh, really, really expensive schools, and then I've seen uh, really, really great public schools, and mm-hmm. I've seen some really, really great charter schools, and I've seen some really, really great schools in general. And I and I think the common denominator isn't whether they're using technology or not. I think that that that's noisy, and we get into the into the concept of that. I think that what we're what the real um, the real benefit or the, or the common denominator across all those great examples is the culture of those schools and what they're doing in those schools. Mm-hmm. I think about Chris Lehman. I hate to throw him any more uh, attention, but Chris Lehman at uh, Science Leadership Academy down in Philadelphia, great okay. friend of mine, 
not a non-traditional inquiry-based school system mm-hmm. and uh, open enrollment for kids in, in, in Philadelphia. And, and he's producing unbelievable results. And he uses technology and he doesn't use technology. And they use research-based stuff and they don't use research-based stuff. But the culture of that school is when kids come up to Chris and say, hey, we want to do this and we want to do it this way. He says, is anyone going to get hurt? <laughs> no. Okay, go do it, right? It's that culture. It's that inclusivity-based culture that they have. Or you look at you know, what Larry's doing down at uh, High Tech High and, and the whole project-based learning. So, so there's great examples and there's different ways of doing things. And part of it is also as a parent, you should have a choice as to what you want, you know, how you want to raise your, raise your kid. Now, that be, all that being said is I grew up in Hell's Kitchen. I grew up with the Columbus Library on 51st Street and 10th Avenue. Mm-hmm. I went to basketball from 3 to 4.45, 4.50, and I had 10 minutes uh, to go do any research that I needed to do with the books that were in that library because it closed at 5. And now I have 100,000, 100 million Columbus libraries at my fingertips, mm-hmm. and I don't know why we're not taking advantage of that, right? And so there's a difference between using technology to empower students, to give them to give them power so that they can learn, versus using technology to do drill and kill school, do, do, do drill and kill exercises with students. Yeah. And so what I always focus on, my my main concern is making sure that we're not using technology to automate and make to, to make bad education faster and more efficient mm-hmm. right and and so taking bad drill and kill worksheets and putting them on a, on a computer doesn't change anything mm-hmm. right it's still bad education so to me it's let's focus on what is it what's the learning model and then how does technology support that if at all right? yeah yeah and i think that what, what often happens is that the technology does become the center. There's an example that that just came to mind that my daughter goes to our local public school and um, it's a great school in terms of the the faculty and the principal. They they create a great great culture, but they're working in somewhat of a toxic system with, you know, just the high stakes testing and everything that's in all of our public schools. And their physical environment is pretty shabby. There's just, there's no... Um, play equipment at all on the, on the, what they call playground. It's really just a postage stamp of a parking lot. And I went up to the principal and I talked to him about uh, maybe getting Kaboom involved. And if you're familiar with uh-huh. Kaboom, they yeah. you know, do um, fundraising and build playgrounds. You know, how can we get some play equipment out there? And of course, he thought of this before. He's aware of the issue. Um, but he said, you know, well, we were kind of working on it. He didn't really have much going on. But he said, but I just got this grant to buy all these smart boards. And he was telling, and, um, and um, I think Kindles or iPads or something like that. Right. And it was interesting that you know, that he, that was his response because it was like he was kind of trying to placate, like, you know, I was interested in more resources, but actually in some ways the smart boards are the opposite of what I, I want them to have swings and slides to be able to go play on. I want them right. to have more rece- recess right. time. Right. Um, I'm not sure if smart, board, smart boards for an elementary school mm-hmm. are all that helpful, especially if the teachers don't know how to do anything innovative with them because right. they haven't learned how to do those things. Right. Um, so I'm now evangelizing myself, but <laughs> right. um, I, I do think that it's – I agree with all of you just what you just said, and mm-hmm. it sounds great, but I think that there's a lot of um, corporate push to sell stuff to schools right. and that the end goal is essentially selling stuff to schools, right. not changing the culture and not using technology to support and innovate. Right. I think is the words you use or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. So, 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 yeah, it's a, technology should be a supporting and enabling capability, yeah. right? And, you know, I think about a smart board, and nothing against smart boards. I think that they can be very powerful, mm-hmm. and I don't want to badmouth smart boards, but I would ask the question is, 
is if, if you're taking if you're taking a blackboard where all the attention has to be on the teacher and everything has to be eyes front forward focus on something and all you do is create an electronic version of that you have to ask yourselves how innovative are you being right, right? same thing with um, you know textbooks or anything else if all you're doing is taking a textbook and making an electronic version of a textbook what, do you, what, what have you done right so I don't want to get into the business of saying, well, let's not use any of these tools mm-hmm. because teachers and educators don't know better. I yeah. would rather focus on, on educating educators and working with educators to figure out how to, how to create uh, learning environments that make sense for learning, for really deep, deep understanding learning, and then using the technology to support that. I mean, I hear all the time. This, this is a common thing you hear all the time. Show me that technology has improved learning. Mm. Right. Show me that technology has 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 improved learning, and my response is always, "Okay, I will. I will create a study showing you how technology supports learning." As soon as you show me how uh, textbooks have improved learning, mm-hmm. or how desks have improved learning, mm-hmm. or how the electricity in the room has improved learning, all these things could be factors in that. Right? Mm-hmm. These are all tools. You know, Google uses the same tools um, that that every other company uses. Right? We have the same technology, we have the same broadband, we have the same access to all the technology that every other company has. Mm-hmm. Why are we different? Mm-hmm. And it's probably culture. Right? It's probably the way we look at things. It's the, mm-hmm. it, and if we, can get skill, if we can get schools to look at things differently, then that's where the focus is. And I, I get as frustrated as, as you do where I walk through a lot of these conferences and I see you know, how, uh, the, uh, a workshop on um, – I got a tablet. I'm not going to name specific tablets, but I, yeah. I got a tablet. What do I do with it? Right? Yeah. As opposed to, I want to teach kids inquiry-based learning. You know, what are the best tools to use to do that? Right. Well, so it's a also, it's like I just saw. I was going through the vendor fair here at the NAA conference, and I saw uh, uh, an advertisement for some kind some kind of company, and I, I don't even know what the company's called, but it was something to the effect of um, social and emotional learning, assessment and intervention. Right. And it's like there's this huge, you know, black and gray sign. Right. And it's like there's something missing about right. the, the, you know, the, there's we now social and emotional learning is a sort of a big trend right now and non-cognitive skills, et cetera. Right. And so we need to be able to assess the problem and intervene is this medical sort of approach, right. which lends itself to um, specific technological tools right. because if you're going to assess and intervene then you can collect the data you can right. figure out the you know sweet spot for intervention and you can right. conduct your intervention right. the problem is is that that sort of approach and even just the language and the tone of it is sort of anti-human sort right. of relationship you now know? I'll say this about assessments in general and here we're in New York so I can say this you know I'm a Yankees fan sometimes I say that and people throw things at me and also, there's no one else in the room, and I'm not a baseball fan. So. <laughs> right. So, so I'm a I'm a baseball fan. Derek Jeter, you know, is retiring after the season, and I've already cried through that whole process. But when Derek Jeter comes up to bat, the announcer says Derek Jeter bats 260 on Tuesdays when it's a full moon and yeah, right. it's you know 57 degrees and above. Mm-hmm. That's a level of performance data that we have mm-hmm. on baseball players. Right. And for some reason. We are okay with taking performance data for our kids as a one test that we take once a year with no feedback, 
no no relationship, no correlation between what they're learning and that exam and that one test in time where that kid might have had a bad morning that morning or not had breakfast that morning or whatever that is. But we, we, for some reason, accept that. So imagine in baseball, instead of no statistics, no scores or anything, at, you know, we just watched the game and then waited till the end of the year you know, to see you know, them take a test to see who wins. Right? It's just the most ridiculous thing in the world. Why don't we have performance-based data in our education process? Why don't I know how my kid is doing every day? Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a technology thing. It could be just an assessment from a teacher, but technology can help us with that. Technology can help us think through some of the things that these kids might or not might be struggling with with the right program. Take a program that does really, really good math, right? Um, I saw one, and a kid is looking at a screen, and there's nothing there. There, it's it's the, the first thing that kid has to do is identify identify the problem. Like, there's there might be an alligator or a penguin or whatever it is that you know that these developers use, mm-hmm. and the, and the kid has to figure out what the problem is. That's the first problem definition, and then they figure out the, they solve the problem, and they do these things, and then before they know it, they they can do they can think of concepts of algebra because they can figure these things out that they're doing in the space. You know, I can see how my kid is doing against that on a daily basis, and 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 that's important. Another, just another quick example is my twelve-year-old um, is uh, plays Minecraft. I can see how my kid progresses in Minecraft. I can see how he communicates, how he collaborates, how he problem solves, how he does these things, and to the point where he comes up to me a couple months ago and he says, oh, "Look, look what I'm doing," and he's learning how to JavaScript. He's learning how to code in JavaScript. And I asked him why. He said, because I looked at some of these mods and um, in Minecraft, if those of you who don't know, and they weren't doing what they what he wanted them to do. So mm-hmm. he's decided to create his own. So he's going to learn how to create his own by first learning how to code in JavaScript. And then, he, and then uh, three weeks later, I'm doing QA on his, on his script to make sure it works. And so he's building on his own mod. QA is quality assurance. Yeah, right? sorry. Yeah. So, so that's, that's powerful stuff, right? And so... I think we spend too much time worried about the drill and kill. We, we, we think of technology as this thing that is like drill and kill exercises, right? Where, where the, the empowerment that comes with tools, and we got to look at them as tools. It's like looking at a construction worker. It's like looking at someone in woodcrafting. It's like looking at anyone who does anything. You put the really good tools in their hands and you give them some education, some apprenticeship, they can build unbelievable things. Okay, but I want to back up for a second yeah. to the, um, the daily monitoring of performance mm-hmm. that, you, that you mentioned. Because um, that to, that actually kind of like terrifies me. Okay. The thought of that. All right. um, you know, w- when I think about my own daughter and how affected she is by if her name ha- gets moved from green to yellow on the behavior chart because she was talking too much at her table, um, and how much it upsets her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about having and just my own experience with work and having so many ups and downs and so many things that take a while to to work. All right. If I was getting any kind of um, score, assessment, uh, evaluation on a daily or even weekly basis, I feel like it would be soul-crushing. So, okay, let's, let's go with that, that, that mod, because I like this, this conversation. This might not, any of this might not end up in, a, in the actual podcast. Oh, but no, it will. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> so so let's, let's do that. Um, how, you know, um, and I think part of it is, per, it's part of it is culture, part of it is personal, part of it is what it is that you're assessing. Totally get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that it's, that there's like three levels. Like your kid did great, your kid sucked today, or your kid, you know, is terrible. It's not, that's not what I'm talking <laughs> I about. I that those are the three levels. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry, I'm in New York. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that way. So, so to me, it's, it's more about, um, 
it, it's not necessarily about having some kind of, of score, but just seeing progress. And here's the, a cultural thing. It's I think we have an expectation for our kids that they always have to be great, that they always have to succeed, that they always have to move forward, that we that they all get trophies, that there aren't we keep no score. And and, and I think we've created that environment. I have two kids, I got twenty one and a twelve year old, and I've gone through this process. Um, and I want my kid to lose a basketball game. You know, he he plays basketball and he lost the championship game literally on the last shot um, of the game. Mm-hmm. And that was crushing for him, sure. right? I want him to have that experience. And so to say that let, let's keep our kids out of that environment where they have crushing experiences, where they don't learn from their mistakes or they don't learn from the iteration that they need to build is is not something that I want my you know my kids to grow up learning how to do. So so part of it is I, I understand what you're saying. Like I don't want a daily report card of my kid. But it's also, again, back to the culture of education and what we're doing in this space because – I believe that you know we have this concept of we need to teach our kids how to fail, right? I don't I don't think that that's true at all. I think failure is a is, is a very black and white word. You either fail or you succeed, and mm-hmm. and I don't like that. And I think that t- plays a lot to what you're saying in terms of like either fail or succeed. I think the world is iterative, right? The Google that you used last night is different than the Google you use today. It's a different version of it, mm-hmm. right? Because we're always iterating and. In life, we're always iterating. We're, we're taking a step forward, taking two back. We're taking one forward, we're taking two back. Or, 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 or we're doing something well with this project or it goes terribly the next day. And I think that that's part of what we need to teach our kids is how to iterate, how to, how to continuously iterate, that it's not one thing. But if I'm iterating, how do I know I'm getting better? How do I know it's, it's progressing? How do I, I'm not going to wait till the end of the year on a project to see if the project's going no, well but, or not. But even now, they, they don't. You know, in just regular schooling, because they wait till the end of the year for assessments, and then there's quarterly, there's there's quizzes every week, and all that stuff. But but putting that yeah, aside, yeah, yeah. though, like what I mean is, so much of the important um, work and development that I've done in my life, and that other people that I know well have done, is is also very intuitive, and there's an internal, and there's work that goes on that's not that I don't believe is is measurable, that the quality is not measurable by anything that anybody from the outside can see. I mean, I'm particularly thinking about anything that has to do with um, creative work mm-hmm. um, or even analytical work. That there's sort of, if you're doing analytical work, um, let's say, you know, I, I studied, and I think you also studied policy, mm-hmm. right? Um, you, there's, the, there's the straightforward work on the surface that, of dealing with the data you have to deal with and, and figuring out what the problem is and the options that might be available to solve it. But right. at the same time, if you're really doing deep analytical work, you're, you're doing what you have to do, whether you're going running or you're you know, doing what you have to do to – that's the, my thing. If I need some sort of creative, um, deeper thinking. Right. And if I'm being judged on a daily or weekly basis right. – um, I th- I, to me, I feel like th- that is a, it's a form of oppression, really, of that sort of work. Like it yeah. values the surface work over the deeper, internal, less harder-to-measure work. Um, yeah, and I think we're talking about the same thing. And I think we're like it depends on what grade you're talking about. It depends on what kind of student we're talking about. All these things are factors. I'll give you a, a real-life example in my personal life because I'm the worst parent in the world for teachers. Absolutely the yeah, worst yeah, parent yeah. in the world, right? <laughs> so when my kid comes home with a worksheet mm-hmm. and it's a division set, right? And I can see the pa- – I can look at it and see the pattern, right, and see exactly what it is that they're supposed to learn in that pattern. Mm-hmm. And my kid sits there and, does, and goes, oh, these? Yeah, let me show you. Boop, boop, boop. Does the first five. And there's another 35 to go. Right. I don't I, – don't do it. You're done. You know it. I don't need you to know it anymore, right? But yet that parent – 
I mean, and so I, if he submits that, what happens? I get a note back that my kid didn't do his homework and, right. and he's failing. It's incomplete. So, yeah. so the current systems, you know, what are we doing in the current system? I want a better system. Now, we can have debates about what that looks like. We can have talk about, like, you know, how do we do? But we are doing daily performance. We are doing uh, basic, you know, every day you get feedback. If your kid stops doing their homework, it's, you're not going to wait three months before you find out right. that your kid's not doing homework. So we are doing that. What are we measuring is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And what we're measuring is bad. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. And there was a recent article. Um, uh, Thomas Friedman had an yes. article just I, last week about... I, I, the, the, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just to, no, to summarize it, it's just really about uh, specifically that Google, when they're hiring, that they don't care about grades or test scores and that what they really are looking for uh, are things that are generally more hard to measure um things like humility taking ownership of your work willingness to learn leadership skills um and you know the headline was sort of like google does google thinks grades and test scores are worthless or whatever you know i mean that wasn't the actual headline but that was the thesis of the the piece um i guess first i want to start with is that was that an accurate uh was that accurate reportage? So, so I, you know, I know Tom, and I, he's hard. He's a hard man to get a hold of sometimes. And my, I tweeted that out, and I said, um, the only thing harder than getting a job at, at Google is, um, you know, getting an email back from Tom Freeman. So that was my, <laughs> my own joke for Tom. Um, I look, and and if you look at that article and you think about that article, then who they're talking about is me, right? So a kid who grew up in Hell's Kitchen. And the role that I'm in now, I, I, you look at LinkedIn. I'm the only graduate from SUNY Brockport that works at Google. Um, so, so, so I think that the the article is accurate, at least in my case. Now, that doesn't mean that there's classes of kids that go to Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Princeton. It, it, it's it, what I think the article is saying is that I, they're already in Harvard and Princeton. And there's already something going on in those brains already. That whether they get a certain grade or a certain score on something doesn't necessarily matter anymore at that point. So I think that's really what the what the what the article is supposed to be saying is that we're not going to look at we're not going to look at what grades you got specifically, you know, from the schools that you went to. And we have lots of people at Google who don't have degrees. We have lots of people who never graduate high school. Right? It's it's the the great thing about being at Google is we don't have dress codes, we don't have uniforms, we don't have uh, you know space that's specific to your your level, right? You know, in cubes, um, we take all that stuff out of the way. So it's really about the content of the of the knowledge that you're bringing to the room and your perspective and your point of view and whether you can learn. That's what we're looking for. So and I and I've hired and been part of the hiring process many times, and I can't tell you what any of those grades or SAT scores or transcripts look like. What I care about is. You know, when you're in the room, can I see your brain work? Can I see you spin? Can I can I see you adjust? Can I see you learn? And those are the things that we're interested in. I think that's what the article is trying to focus on. Yeah, and I don't think Google is unique in that way. I think you know, I don't think most um, you know people who are involved in hiring processes are real interested in the test scores or even grades right. of of the candidates they get in. Now that can possibly play a part in the sorting process. So whether yeah. you even get an interview, yeah. um, as you said, just having Harvard on your resume is going to get you in the door a lot of times. Right. Um, but I, I guess what I what I want to ask is: do, so, are you ad, are you advocating for an educational system that would adjust so that the um, the assessments that come out are not the test scores and grades that we have today, but something that reflects the values that you're actually looking for in the hiring process? Yeah. So I think what what I would be advocating for is creating 
a generation of lifelong learners that want to understand things deeply, right? I mean, at the end of the day, one of the things that I say in my presentation is that teachers no longer have to be the Google in the room, right? We, we're, we're beyond that, and yet we're still doing that. You have kids in school. I have kids in school. My seventh year old, my seventh, um, sorry, my 12-year-old seventh grade classroom basically looks the same as my seventh grade classroom looked like. It made, that model made sense at one point because when you and I were in school and somebody would ask us a question, we had two choices. We would say, hang on, let me go ask someone else, right? Mm-hmm. And so now all of a sudden your whole assessment is based on that credibility of some person that you can ask a question to. Or you'd say, I'll be back in two days. I'm going to go find out, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to go to the library and find all that information out. So it made sense that we had a, you know, we had a, the teachers had all the information and put it into our heads because we had to pass the information down. We, we have all the information at our fingertips now. So the real question is, if we have all that information, what is that baseline knowledge that we all need to, to know? But more importantly, what are the skills around that that we need to build, right? Around communication, collaboration, problem solving, you know, iteration, those types of things so that kids are developing an, uh, that kids are d- developing and appreciating an, an understanding for uh, sorry a, an appreciation for understanding something deeply right and that's my job so when my kid asks me a question I always say I'm I, I'm not the search engine I work for the search engine go look it up and then mm-hmm. it's my responsibility what did you find where did you find it does it make sense do you need to vet it like uh, all these kinds of questions that we need to have, all these kinds of questions that we need to be able to ask our, our students so that they can really understand something deeply. We're not teaching search skills. We're not teaching research skills in schools. We're pretending like the Internet's a fad, like like it's going to go away someday. It's not going away. It, how do we take advantage of it? Like I, my biggest thing, and, and I say this in my presentations all, all the time, is that we've gone from a world where we had no no access to information, and now we have the world all the way. And I don't just mean Google; I just mean we have all the world's information at our fingertips, right? You you can you can visit anywhere in the world. You can take trips anywhere. Anytime I, I go out of the country, I sit with my kid and go through Google Earth and show him pictures and how long it takes to get somewhere. Or mm-hmm. if you go to a museum, you can go to you know to the uh, to the the Google Art Project and see brushstroke level detail of art anywhere in the world. And we're not freaking out about that. Right, it's like, that to me is the most mind blowing thing. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, an education, an educational system that would do what you just said, um, you know, would you agree that that is not centered around um, standardized testing? Oh, absolutely. So, does do you in your role, or does Google um, participate in any of the the sort of growing coalitions and the growing movement to oppose high, uh, standardized testing? Um, I, 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 there's nothing, um, and I'm not speaking for Google in, in this regard. Um, I think that there's better ways to, to, to understand how kids are doing. And that's my, well, the, the discussion that we were having earlier. It's like, what is that, right? What is that kind of uh, way to understand how kids are doing based on what you just read in that article from Tom Friedman about understanding the real skills that kids need to have? Um, but at the same time, I get that as parents, we want to know how our kids are doing. We want to be able to compare them to, uh, you know, to us. So we want to be able to see that we're sending them to a school. You know, there's something that happens as a parent. You know, you, you grow up with this kid and he drives you crazy and then you send them off to school and you want to know how they're doing and you want to know that they're doing well. So I, I get that until we fill that gap, until we have a process that can show me how kids are doing and how they're progressing around the skills that are really, really important then I don't know what else we have in place. Well, I mean, there's grades, right? Yeah, but grades are subjective, right? Grades are, are you know, I you know, grades are 
comparable to what, right? So uh, if you take a test, give me a multiple choice test. You and I can sit down and give, take a multiple choice test right now. And I can, if you give me enough time, I can make four of any five answers correct. No, I, I totally agree. <laughs> but right. w- what I'm saying is if, if, the, if the world you envision uh-huh. is not centered around standardized testing the way it is now, I'm suggesting, and, yeah. and, and really I want to be as like, direct as possible, yeah. that um, Google could make a huge impact. Mm-hmm. If it um, became a leader in joining the movement um, uh, to oppose high stakes testing and standardized testing and the standardization of of schooling, right? If if you all like chose to step into that and and you'd be putting yourself put, uh, pitting yourself against some major corporations out there who are benefiting so much from um, the testing industry, right? Um, it could have a huge impact. I think much bigger than the impact that uh, a lot of the groups who are currently involved, which are coming more out of teachers' groups and parent groups. Right. But if a huge you know, worldwide um, power like Google stepped in, it could really have a huge impact. Right. You, you know what's interesting? And, and, and I, you know, obviously this is something that we're looking at, something that we need to pay attention to, those types of things. And these are kids that are coming into our, not only Google users, but also kids that we're hiring and working. So yeah. obviously we have a vested interest in this. Um, but I will tell you this, that, that I think about what you say, and, and, and it would be easy to say, to stand up and say, I am against standardized testing and so forth. But I, my kid came to me with his, I forget what test they, standardized test they have. And I looked at the test, and, and, and I remember reacting to like, like uh, some low math scores that he had on that, on that standardized test. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and it concerned me, and I created a plan with him to get him to the point where uh, I didn't, not necessarily wanted him to pass the test but wanted to make sure he understood the concepts in math that I want him to understand. Mm-hmm. So even with that in my position my personal not Google's position but my personal position and feelings about these things, mm-hmm. I still reacted to that somehow. So sure. until we have a solution that replaces that, um we, that's I think the problem that we need to mm-hmm. solve. Mm-hmm. So I, I know um you're gonna have to do your speech in a minute. Yeah. I got one more thing I want to sure. ask you. Have you read uh D- Dave Egger's new book, The Circle? No, I haven't. Oh I should read I it. Was, yeah, I would love to know what you think about what, it. You, what's the book about? The Circle is a, it's a slightly in the future and sort of, it's a sort of happy dystopia. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that there's this company, The Circle, that has sort of subsumed Google, Facebook, all these things. It's become one, uh-huh. one company. Okay. Um, and it's taken a lot of the things that are happening now around transparency, um, sort of putting cameras everywhere and um, sharing all of your you know, oh, I think personal business on book. social media. Yes. It's taking it to the next um, logical or the next few logical steps right. to the point where it's um, terrifying. Yeah, and, and you know, um, I'll leave you with this, right? So I grew up, I was talking to Terry about this. I grew up in Hell's Kitchen. I grew up here. And it's hard for people who know New York and know Manhattan and understand the, 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 how complex the city is. When I, it's hard for people to understand that I say I grew up in a small town. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Hell's Kitchen. We all knew each other. We took care of each other. Now, if you weren't from Hell's Kitchen and you came into my neighborhood in right. the 70s, that was a bad idea. Right. But we took care of each other. I, my mother could walk down the street at 3 o'clock in the morning with bags of diamonds and she was safe, right? Um, I got yelled at by – I got smacked in the head by security guards that worked at stores, right? I – um, I would go home and my mother would slap me in the head because Johnny the dry cleaner called her yeah. and um, and we and, and because she, he saw me smoking a cigarette on the yeah. corner, right? Yeah. I grew up in a small town. Yeah. 
I think what the internet's done really is create one big giant small town, right? And and so, what is the consequence of that? What, what where are we going with this? It is is we never really said you know it's terrifying to grow up in a small town where everybody knows your business. You know, it's just we have to adjust. We have to figure out what that looks like. And so, I think that I love to read the book. It's on my list now. Yeah. Um, but I always kind of you know. I take these things with a grain of salt in terms of like what the world's turned into because I don't see a lot. I, you know, I see us at the end of the day, we're humans, we're social creatures, um, and, and there's very pragmatic things that we do. Um, and and I think one of the things that we always do is like you know the sky is falling kind of thing is mm. part of what who we are. Mm-hmm. And, and and so you know I always like to I, I, I giggle at some of those things sometimes. Yeah. Well, I wish we had more time to continue because there's there's a lot there to talk about, but. Um, you have a big keynote speech to do. There's about yes. a couple thousand people out there waiting yeah. for you here at the NAA convention. Thanks for having and, um, me. And thanks for taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. I really right. appreciate it. Thanks. Whoa!